0: To Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander.
1: We began to consider Moses as one of the great examples of faith under pressure, under trial, faith under fire, as this 11th chapter of Hebrews expounds to us this theme. The biblical history of Moses gives us many shining examples of the meaning and significance of faith and its several different facets. We found last Wednesday evening that in verse 23, for example, we were learning about parental faith. The spiritual history of Moses, we found, began not with Moses himself, but with his parents And then in verses 24 to 26, personal faith. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill-treatment with the people of God. He considered abuse suffered for Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And then in verse 27 we find, persevering faith illustrated in Moses by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible and now in verse 28 to which we turn this evening we have the great illustration or picture of saving faith in Moses by faith Moses kept the passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now here is a great example in the experience of Moses of saving faith, because of course the Passover is God's great prototype or model of how he saves his people. You remember the picture that we have, that is the background to the Passover. You have the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt, an illustration of the bondage into which sin brings the human heart and will. We have then the picture of the angel of death going through Egypt as the destroyer, an illustration of the imminent outpouring of the judgment and wrath of God ...against sin, and you get that picture in God's promise that the angel of death will be sent by him over Egypt to bring judgment to this gainsaying people. And then we have the picture of the divine provision of the blood of the Lamb. A provision which the people of Israel were to take and sprinkle on every doorpost and lintel on their homes... And God promised them, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That is the one place, and this is the eternal significance of the Passover feast and institution. God is saying that there is one place where there will be shelter from the outgoing wrath and anger of God against sin. There is one hiding place from judgment, and that is under the shelter of the shed blood of the Lamb. Now, that is a great picture, of course, of what we are called to believe and rest upon for our salvation. And this is the real significance of the Passover. We have said often in our study of Exodus on Sunday mornings that Exodus is God's great picture book of redemption. And here is the great picture of God's gracious provision of salvation which he makes for his people. And Christ is the fulfillment of all that was symbolized by this event of the Passover. He is the Lamb of God who is slain in John 1.29. He is the Passover who is sacrificed for us in 1 Corinthians 5. His redeeming blood is like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot in 1 Peter 1.19. And you can go through the whole of the New Testament and find that the figure of the Passover is answered in Christ. Now that's of some some very special significance to us as we come to the Lord's table on Sunday morning, and in a a strange manner it happens that we're going to be studying the Passover in the course of our study of Exodus on Sunday morning. But here is what we are doing as we come to the Lord's table. We are dealing with the fulfillment of what here stands in shadow in the Old Testament Scripture. And as Moses is called as an example of faith, here he is an example of saving faith. He is the one who receives and rests upon Christ and Christ alone for salvation. As he is offered to us in the gospel. And the significance of Moses' saving faith as an example is this that Moses recognizes the truthfulness of God's word, the reliability of God's promises, and the seriousness of God's threats. Because it's a very important thing for us, not only to take God's promises seriously, but to take God's threats seriously. And Moses took the word of God with utter seriousness and recognized that there was no other hiding place from the wrath of God except in the blood of the Lamb. Now that is what faith lays hold of. Faith lays hold of God's given word. Faith recognizes that there is no other shelter from the wrath of God except in the blood of Jesus. And so faith rests upon Christ's sacrifice as the Lamb of God to take away sin. And of course in many ways this ran counter in the days of the people of Israel to all human wisdom and human design of every kind. It's interesting to see how in so many of the examples that you get in this part of Hebrews, so often faith runs counter to worldly wisdom. What faith rests upon is regarded by the world as sinking sand, you see. And this was true of Noah, for example, who when God spoke his word, Moses rested his confidence on what God had said. He committed himself to God's way of salvation for himself and his household. He rested upon the building of an ark and entered into it, and rested himself on it. And there is significance in this ark floating on the water, and Noah casting himself upon this. Moses is precisely the same. As he goes out to slay a lamb and sprinkle blood on the doorposts, and proclaims to the people that the angel of death is going to go through Egypt, the whole thing runs counter to worldly wisdom. But faith takes its stand on what God has said and rests on God's provision and God's plan. And faith rests supremely upon the Lamb God has provided. But it is so contrary to worldly wisdom. The same is true of the next example of Joshua, for instance, ex- for instance you remember how Joshua was given instruction about the manner in which he had to compass Jericho, and the way in which the city of Jericho was going to be taken. It ran counter to every form of human thinking. But Joshua and the people of Israel marched persistently in faith around the city, And on the seventh day they marched round it seven times and they proved God. Now that's what faith does. Faith may not always understand. I was speaking to somebody just this week who was saying to me, I find it impossible to understand how Christ's death on the cross 2,000 years ago can make some dramatic difference to my life and to the whole of my destiny I can't grasp or understand it and I had to say to him well neither can I it runs counter to carnal wisdom but it is what God has given to us and examine it and study it and test it out as we may the time comes when we have to cast our soul upon God's provision. And Moses and the people of Israel did so. The test of faith then is whether they were willing to believe God's word and rest on it. And on the basis of that they found that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So by faith Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them, and he thereby becomes an example of saving faith. Now, verse 29 confronts us with the fact that the faith of those who rested on God's promise and on the sprinkled blood was soon to be tested Almost immediately they launched out, in fact, upon God. Their faith was tested. Scarcely had they started their journey, as we read in verse 29, than they found themselves brought into a situation of enormous pressure. Now have you pictured the people of Israel having tasted God's redemption? Having rested on God's provision of a slain lamb and trusted in the spilt and sprinkled blood, they launch out upon God into a new era in their existence. And almost as soon as they have gone out, they are suddenly hemmed into a situation of incredible pressure. They discover that they are faced with the Red Sea in front of them, a seemingly impassable obstacle. And as they are tempted to turn back, they suddenly hear the sound of the hooves of the Egyptians coming behind them. And they find themselves hedged about and pressed in. It was impossible for them to go to either side. They are hedged about on every side and under enormous pressure. And this is the great test of their faith. They were hemmed in on every side. And what was happening really was, you see, that God was shutting them up, as someone has said, unto faith. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So Moses came to the people of God in the midst of this situation where they were pressed beyond measure. And he says to them, fear not, stand still, and you will see the salvation of God. And that was exactly what they did. But it is a matter of great significance that the people of God, almost as soon as they are launched out on this new life, find themselves brought to the situation of incredible, mysterious pressure. It is certain that they never imagined God would lead them into this kind of situation. God spoke to Moses and said, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they go forward. And you can imagine how ludicrous that must have seemed. Forward was into the Red Sea forward appeared to be into a place of death and disaster. But at that point I wonder if you recollect God did a very wonderful thing. He called upon them through Moses first of all stand still and you will see the salvation of God. What he is calling upon them to do now is to recognize what these pressures upon life are for. Do you know that that poem or hymn, I'm not quite sure what it is, which speaks of being pressed above measure and then pressed into knowing no helper but God, pressed to the place where the only way that you can look is upwards. Now that's what God was doing with his people. He was setting about forming them into a people who would be a people of a special caliber. And so often that is created through the kind of pressures They found themselves under. Paul may well have had this in mind, many scholars think, when he writes to the Corinthians and says, God will not suffer you to be tempted above what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will also make a way to escape. Now there was a way of escape for the people of God, but they had to be pressed to the point where the only way they could look is upward. And at that point, as I say, God did a very wonderful thing. You will recollect that there were two pillars that went before the people of Israel, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that pillar was a symbol of God's presence. And in the midst of this situation of sudden and pressure. God moved the pillar of cloud from going before them to come round to the rear of his children. It's a very beautiful and very wonderful symbol because the pillar was a symbol of the presence of God and God having led them by this pillar of cloud now as it were comes behind them. And you see what God is doing he is stationing himself between his people and their pursuing enemies. He is standing between Israel and Egypt, almost as a mother might stand behind children who are in danger and usher them into the pathway that she sees is the way of release for them and safety. And God, as it were, takes his place behind his children. Can you imagine the picture that we are meant to see of God ushering them towards the place where he was going to make a pathway in the sea for them? And God's presence came to the rearward of his people, we read. And it is as he ushers them forward that the people of Israel are pushed into something that by nature they would have run a thousand miles from. But in that situation they have discovered God in a measure and at a depth which was almost unique in their history. And it's a very significant thing that forever after in the life of the people of Israel They look back to that day. Afterwards, they sing a song of their redemption, of how they were brought through the Red Sea. But ever afterwards, when they were encouraging one another in God, or when God was coming to encourage them, they looked back to that day and identified God as the God who brought them up out of the Red Sea, who took them through the waters. And it was an occasion when faith was pressed into the place where they were trusting God. And they exalted in his care and his grace for his people. You know, if you are in some extremity, experiencing some kind of pressure like the people of Israel, This is what it's for, beloved. These pressures that God allows to come upon our lives are not accidental or incidental. They are for this, that we might be pressed into knowing God in a new measure. That's what God is doing in these days of pressure and darkness when somehow it seems to us that there is no way out. Have you ever thought like that? There is no way out of the situation and the pressure of God is upon us to press us not into some kind of depression or disaster but to press us in to knowing him in a new measure I always remember an occasion when I was a student and one of the places some of us used to study was in the Mitchell Library I remember being in the Mitchell Library one Saturday afternoon when Tom Allen was here, minister of St. George's Tron, and he used to study in the Mitchell Library too on a Saturday afternoon. Did you know that? I don't know whether that's where he got away from the telephone or what, but he used to be in the Mitchell regularly. And I felt a hand on my shoulder when I was studying and he said, come on out for a walk. So out for a walk we went round the Mitchell Library and we hadn't gone very far before there was a little boy stuck up on a window of the Mitchell Library, very high or were then anyway, and down below was a pretty fierce looking big black mongrel dog baring its teeth at the little boy. And Tom Allen, in the way that was so typical of him, if you knew him, uh, stood at the foot of the window and said to him, what's the mater son? He could lapse very quickly into the new mills, Doric. Uh, you may know he was a native of new mills. What's the mater son, he said. And the wee boy said, oh, I'm feared, mister. That Doug's following me. <laughs> so he said, now, how would it be if I got it to follow me instead? the wee boy said oh that would be good mister he said. so Tom Allen walked over the road and called the dog to follow him and the dog uh, ran away over the other side of the road with the help of Tom's boot I think <laughs> but, uh, he said came back over the road and the wee boy is sitting up there and he called down to him mister he said you're no going to leave me up here are you Tom Allen held his arms out, and I stood and watched this. And the wee boy slid down the slope, bit in the window, into his arms. And he said, "Oh, Mister Vira Pal." <laughs> and I'll never forget his response. He said, "Son, Jesus is the best pal anybody can ever have. And if you would just trust Him." He would never need to be feared again. I've never forgotten that simple thing. But you know it's so profoundly true. And as he stood there with that little boy in his arms and put him down and assured him that he would walk behind him while the dug was standing at the close across the road... It spoke to me of something of how the cloud of God's presence so readily comes to gird his people and how he stands a shield and a rearward for his children in the most glorious way. Our beloved, to learn to trust God like that is worth being in the midst of all kinds of pressure to learn to know God like that his riches indeed so Moses stretched out his rod and the sea opened before them and what seemed an impossible situation became a way of trial. And an occasion, as I say, to which they looked back in the future to encourage themselves to trust God. There is a way of escape and faith lays hold on God's reliability and God's sufficiency for his people in every kind of pressure. Now, the other two great examples of faith deal with the capture of Jericho and the faith of Rahab. And the capture of Jericho is in verse 30 and the faith of Rahab in verse 31. But what's really hidden, of course, between verses 29 and 30 is 40 years of history. Because, as you know from the history of the Old Testament... The crossing of the Red Sea does not immediately precede the falling of the walls of Jericho. There are 40 years between these two events. And these 40 years are 40 years when the people of Israel are in the wilderness. And that wilderness experience also became an example in New Testament writing. 1 Corinthians 10, for example, is full of it. It became a great example, not of faith, but of unbelief. Not of obedience, but of disobedience. Not of trust and confidence, but of murmuring and rebelliousness. And there's a whole generation. According to chapter 3 of Hebrews, these 40 years in the wilderness were 40 years of unbelief. And there is a whole generation where the history of the people is marked by unbelief and disobedience and unwillingness to trust God. That's a very solemnizing thing, you know, isn't it? That has become some people's personal history. It has become the history sometimes of a whole fellowship, It has become the history of a whole nation. And it's the history of 40 years in the wilderness. And reading, as it were, between the lines, I'm sure we are meant to grasp the significance of this in the course of what the writer of the epistle has to say to us about how pressure is intended by God to drive you deeper into the knowledge of God. But you see, pressure can do the opposite, as you and I well know. All pressure that people go through does not do this. All experiences of trial and pressure do not press people into know God more deeply. They do not produce sweetness in their character. They do not always bring them into a deeper knowledge of God. They sometimes produce bitterness and hardness and barrenness. So that this 40 years in the wilderness becomes a monument of warning. And it's very real. I think it's an enormously important thing for us to cry to God that whatever pressures he permits to be brought upon our lives should have this end and this aim. Amy Carmichael, who lived under enormous pressure for most of her missionary years, lying on her back for the greater part of her missionary career in India and Donavu, Amy Carmichael cried to God one day, Lord, let not one pain be diverted from thy purpose. Now those of us who haven't known much pain can scarcely understand what that means. But that's a marvelous thing to hear somebody pray who knows what it is. In one of her books she writes this beautiful thing at the beginning. Most books... To the ill are written by the well to the ill. This book is written by the ill to the ill. So she knew what she was talking about, but let not one pain be diverted from thy purposes. We really do need to grasp this, and that God so often uses this kind of pressure for his own gracious purpose. They went through 40 years in the wilderness, and Paul says these things were written for our admonition on whom the ends of the ages are come in 1 Corinthians 10. But then in the days of Joshua, they at last entered this promised land that God had covenanted to them. And even when they came into the promised land, do you notice obstacles again met their pathway. It's a very significant thing to find that all of these men of faith in the the Old Testament were men who found the pilgrimage of faith, the life of faith, was really a fight of faith. They found themselves engaged in conflict from day to day. And this is one of the truths that we desperately need to be taught or at least convinced of. In our own minds, I think it's not sometimes that we don't know it, but that we are not convinced of it in our hearts, that the nature of Christian progress is through conflict with the powers of darkness. And they found throughout all of this history in Hebrews 11, they found that not one inch of progress was uncontested by the powers of darkness. Everywhere they went. They were in the midst of warfare. I think it's a very important thing for us to teach to young people especially. You know I'm constantly aware that one of the areas in which many young Christian people make shipwreck is that they have been given a wrong picture of the Christian life. They have been given a picture of the Christian life of one long kind of euphoria, a constant spiritual shwepper which never dies down. And they imagine that from one experience to another like this, they go on without ever coming against, against any kind of obstacle. So when they find that the powers of hell are suddenly unleashed against them, they say, what's this? I wasn't told about this. I wasn't told that this is what the Christian life was. So either I'm not a Christian, or there's something wrong with my spiritual life, or there's something wrong with God. He's let me down. And so it goes on, you see. And the confusion becomes compounded. Or I'd better go after some kind of experience that will get me out of this situation. This vain search. Something that's so awful one sees people involved in. And I am sure it's largely because of a misunderstanding of the very nature of Christian experience. The Apostle Paul says we wrestle. And that not against ordinary enemies like flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. We are wrestling hand-to-hand combat. That's what wrestling is. They are engaged in that. Now, beloved, you and I are going to find that a reality in our spiritual life. That is the stuff of Christian experience. The glorious thing in it, of course, is that we are wrestling on from victory to victory. We are not engaged in the kind of conflict where the outcome is in doubt. There is no question about the outcome. For our Lord Jesus has gained the victory for us and he gives it to us. Thanks be to God who giveth us the victory. But we are engaged in the conflict moving towards the victory day when the Lord Jesus shall appear in glory. And Joshua and the people of Israel found that this was the characteristic of their experience, even when they crossed the Jordan. Now, from the beginning of this period in their spiritual history, the people of Israel were learning that spiritual warfare, that is the fight of faith, is not fought with carnal weapons, but with spiritual weapons. And that's the principle on which Jericho fell to them, and they became conquerors. It was on that basis that Israel moved forward, that this warfare was fought with spiritual weapons. I wonder if you remember the mysterious encounter, which is of great significance at the beginning of Joshua, between Joshua and the captain of the Lord's host. It really seems to have been an appearance of the Lord himself to Joshua. And Joshua is at the beginning of of this, possessing their possessions. Now, the way they possessed their possessions was through conflict. But at the outset of the conflict he meets the captain of the Lord's host and he comes to him and says are you for us or for our enemies he sees this great and mighty figure are you for us or for your enemies for our enemies and the captain of the Lord's host answered him and says no now there's a sense in which of course no isn't an answer to that question if you know anything about normal English usage there was no answer in, in the answer no but what he was really meaning was No, it's the wrong question. And the real question was not, Lord, are you on our side or their side? The real question is the question of God, are you on my side? That was the question. Now, there's a world of difference between these two concepts, you see. Is God on my side? That's not the question, God says. The question is, are you on my side? Are you for us or for our enemies? No, he says. But as captain of the Lord's host, I have come. Now this, you see, is the great basic principle of Christian warfare. It is not that we summon God to our assistance to do things our way. We have got our plans made, you see. That was Joshua's Idea. We have our plans made, he says, and here is this mighty warrior coming. We could make great use of this warrior, he says. Are you on our side? Come and enlist here. And the Lord says to him, oh no, I have got all my plans for the battle. You come and enlist here. That's how the Lord's battles are fought. God taking the initiative. God having the strategy. God making the plans, God gaining the victory. And that's how Jericho fell, you see. Paul possibly had Jericho in mind when he wrote, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now God has placed certain basic weapons in the hands of the church And faith consists in fighting the Lord's battles His way. And that's a tremendously important lesson, beloved, for us to learn. It's not always easy to learn it, you know, because the great temptation is to be diverted, to seek to fight the Lord's battles our way. To have our own strategy and our own plans and our own ideas and priorities. But faith, faith involves this. And these people were in the midst of a situation where they greatly needed to learn this. Faith involves fighting the Lord's battles his way. Do you remember how in Acts chapter 6 the church came across this very crisis? They were in danger of being diverted. Do you remember how they had to plan and rethink and restructure? We have a lot of talk in the church these days about restructuring the church. But here is the kind of restructuring which the New Testament Church did. They said, we are in danger of being diverted from our priorities. There are certain things that are very important, looking after the widows, be they Hebrew or Greek. These are very important things. I was speaking to the men's group on Friday evening about the importance of this social concern, and we need to have it. But they said... We are going to be diverted from the things that are the great weapons God has given us for making inroads in the ancient world. Prayer and the ministry of the word. So we will restructure to make sure that these priorities are secure. And they appointed these men we call deacons, Stephen and the others. And they gave them this ministry and this task. And it pleased the whole multitude. And it clearly pleased God also, who thereafter poured out his blessing upon them. And thousands were added to them. But it was because they were waging the Lord's battles, the Lord's way. Now, let me say this to you. When the people of Israel went round these walls of Jericho, it couldn't have been easy going on doing it God's way. If you think of it, what mutts they must have felt and looked as they walked round Jericho, six days running, marching round with not a whimper, not even a toot of trumpets, and the people inside no doubt looking at them, thinking what ridiculous spectacles these Israelites were, trusting in their God, And there they walked around, but they kept at it. Why? Why did they keep at it? Well, I'll tell you why they kept at it. They kept at it because they believed God. They believed in God's methods for doing his work and waging his battles. They kept at it through thick and thin, through mockery and discouragement. And it must have been very discouraging. One day, round the walls, nothing happened. Another day, nothing happened. Another day, still nothing happening. Nothing happening, people would be saying. And then on the seventh day, round it six times and still nothing happened. And oh, how their faith must have been tested. Can we go on, they said. And they went round the seventh time and suddenly there was a shudder like an earthquake round Jericho and the walls came clattering down. And they proved God. They proved God. Now, you know when nothing is happening immediately, day after day, It's not always easy to do it God's way. But that's where faith is really tested. And the issue of whether you are ready to go on doing it God's way is the issue of how sure you are of God, how sure you are of his word. That's the issue. Ian Hamilton is here tonight, and it's a tremendous joy to have him here. As you will know, well, if you don't know, you ought to know that um, he is clearing up the trouble I left in New Mills uh, after I finished there. Let me say to you, in a situation like that, where when we went first, there was one Christian man who was 82. And he came into the vestry the first day I was there and said to me, I've prayed for 40 years that somebody might be sent here. And he said I'll pray for you every day and he did I believe but you know often in these early years when there was no fellowship really and my wife used to say to me uh, you miss fellowship don't you and then we would say to each other but if we had gone out to Thailand as we thought we might have done at one point We wouldn't have gone for fellowship. We would have gone because we were going into the battlefield. And we would have set our hand to the plough. But it was a great temptation, I can tell you. To look for some quick way. Of fighting the Lord's battles and doing the Lord's work. Shortcuts. Like the shortcuts that... Jesus was tempted to find. Why go through all that suffering, said the devil to him. Cast yourself down from the temple and the world will be at your feet, man, he said. Why should you wait until you have gone through the anguish of Calvary? Just bow down and worship me and the full world will be yours. I'll give it to you. There is something very sinister about shortcuts, you know and it's an enormously important thing that you are sure of God and you are ready to go on God's way doing God's work and fighting his battles in the way that he has given you to believe is his way now This is where wedging the warfare fundamentally through believing prayer and spirit anointed preaching is really tested we really need to be sure of that beloved that this is what the work of God centers on there are many other things of course But we really need to be absolutely sure of that. That the Lord's work is basically done by these two means. We will give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It's very easy for us to be diverted from that, but I tell you, the walls of Jericho will never come down any other way. The next battle after Jericho was A.I. We all know Jericho. I wonder how many of you know A.I.? Well, Jericho was glorious triumph. A.I. was ignominious defeat. And do you know why? They got a bit cocky after Jericho. They said, don't send all the army up to A.I., and when God said do it this way they said well there's no need actually to stick to that very seriously we'll do it this way and they took some of the booty and they said we'll just do it our own way and they were humiliated at AI because God's battles have to be fought God's way and we need to learn it Now, finally, in verse 31, the most unexpected instance of faith before we come to the point where he has prepared more material clearly than he has time for, a man after my own heart. Uh, What shall I say more? He says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon and all these other people. But finally, for us this evening, in verse 31, Rahab is probably the least expected person as a great example of faith. She is described as the harlot. And the designation follows her. Of course, it was before grace touched her life that she was a harlot. But that designation, says John Calvin, heightens the grace of God. Now the point about Rahab is what? By faith, Rahab the harlot, she was involved in Jericho. Of course, as you know, eh, when the spies came to her, And uh, you can read it in Joshua 2. We don't have time to read it tonight. But when the spies came to her, she heard their report, the report of what God had done throughout the history of his people and how he had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and had been a mighty warrior for them. And she heard the report, this poor benighted woman. And she believed it. She staked her life on it, in fact. And she said, I'm ready to lose everything for the sake of this. I cast my lot in with the people of God. I rest myself on this God whose report I've heard. Now that that was her faith. Rahab believed the reports of the work that God had done and the promises God had made and she cast herself upon him. And that really is the fundamental thing, you know. Do you remember how Isaiah 53 begins? Who has believed our report? And Rahab would have stood up and said, I have believed it.
0: You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and hear the Word of God.